Good morning, Moran Park. My name is Chris Beetham, one of the elders here at Moran. What a privilege it is to be with you this morning. Favorite hour of the week is to be right here with you. We continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. But to set it up, I actually want to do something. Uh, I actually want to review the epic story of Scripture with you that we did back in April, May, and June. Uh, we did this series, you'll recall, uh, where we had these six parts of the Bible that we uh, unpacked. Uh, we, talked about the, we talked about the Bible being not primarily a, a book of morals or a, a theological textbook, but a story. A story that runs from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, 22. Has a beginning, climax, and an end. We talked about that story being the story, the epic story of creation to new creation. That was the shorthand. The little bit longer form of the title was the epic story of the mission of God from creation to new creation. That what God began to do in Genesis 1, despite the fall, God will in fact accomplish and complete at the end of the story. You see, at the beginning of the story in Genesis 1, God created the world and he created humanity. He created you and I and he created us to be his image bearers. And he commanded us as his image bearers, those who are to reflect his glory into all the earth, those who are to love him and know him with all their heart, those who are images image, images reflect the glory of their creator king. And so it's also royalty language, if you remember. He tasks us as his royal sons and daughters um, to rule the earth and fill the earth, not with our own kingdoms, but with his kingdom with his rule, with his glory, with his love. And so he tasks us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his glory. As the earth was to be grow in ever-increasing circles of uh, image bearers, as we spread out across the earth, God's glory would be filled. The earth would be filled with his glory as we expanded upon the earth. Well, we know the story takes a dark and twisted turn, we know that Satan comes in, tempts or tests Adam and Eve, and they commit high treason against their king and plunge the entire project into disarray and dysfunction and death. But it doesn't take long, and we get to Genesis chapter 12, and God reveals his plan to save the world. He calls a nobody named Abraham. And says, basically, Abraham, in and through your offspring, I'm going to save the world. In and through your seed, in and through your family, I'm going to bring the one who will reverse the curse and reverse this mess and bring about my purposes for creation. There will be, in fact, plan A is plan A. There's no plan B. God was not surprised by what Satan did. What God intended to do in Genesis 1, despite the fall, God will do through this promised one and eventually bring about the new creation, a resurrected world, filled with his glory, 
filled with image bearers, healed, restored, resurrected, filled with His Spirit, who love Him perfectly, know Him perfectly, and radiate His glory. Radiate His glory to the end of the earth. Drinking from His manifold perfections to their overflowing satisfaction and having then that overflow spill over into joyful, productive work and play and adventure and culture building. Transforming our cosmos into the kingdom of God. So the six acts of the story, there were three in the Old Testament, if you remember, three in the New Testament. So let's shake off the rust a little bit. Let's see how much you remember. Some of us weren't here for that series, but many of you were. There were three acts in the Old Testament. They were, do you remember that? Just one word each. It was creation, fall, Israel. Very good. And what then? Tao? Do it. Israel. And then, do you remember who comes in the New Testament? Who's the person? Who's the special hero? Do you remember? I think so. It's Jesus, right? Yeah. It's Jesus. Yeah. That's right. Jesus is Act 4. We come to the New Testament. Yeah. And then we have the church, right? Yeah, church. And then we have new creation. Okay, so say it with me. Creation. Creation. Fall. Four. Israel. Israel. Jesus. Church, Church. New, creation. new creation. Awesome. Okay. Give yourself a hand. All right. So that was weeks ago. Uh, we talked about that, unpacked that at length. That was an amazing uh, series. At least I thought, I thought so. I had a ton of fun doing that. And that's the epic story of Scripture. But why am I doing that this morning? We continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. I thought we were in a series in the Gospel of Matthew. Well, yes, we are. When we come to Matthew 4, of course, the Gospels are part of which act of that story? Are they over here in, in the Old Testament? Where does, where does the Gospel of Matthew fit? Jesus. It's in here in Jesus, right? Jesus comes on the scene. We're, we've gone from, we're moving from Old Testament to New Testament. We're going from promise to fulfillment. And Matthew is presenting Jesus to us, this long-awaited Messiah, this Mashiach, this king who will fulfill God's original creation purposes, his original creation intentions, despite sin and death, he's the one that's going to rescue this thing, get it back on track, save the world, and bring about the new creation. So we're moving from Old Testament to New Testament, and we're still at the very cusp of our study in the Gospel of Matthew. And our text this morning is the temp- what's traditionally called the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And our text is normally uh, preached upon and we're, giving, we're given th- three or four ways G- we, we look at how Jesus battled temptation and we look to see how um, the text might teach us how we might also then battle temptation. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. We're actually gonna, I'm going to actually take a moment and we're going to do that. How did, how did Jesus battle temptation when temptation comes his way? What can we learn from that? He is the perfect, he's the perfect image bearer, right? We can, learn, we can learn from him how it is to be 
fully human uh, in and through looking at his life. But I want to submit to you for your thinking that actually Jesus is doing something or God is doing something here in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, something a little bit different as its primary focus, as its primary lens. And we wouldn't catch that, we wouldn't catch that if we didn't put Gospel of Matthew chapter 4 into the larger framework of the epic story. You put these lenses on, right? And you begin to see things that you didn't see before. And that's what I want to suggest to you is going on this morning in Matthew chapter 4, 1 to 11. What I want to do, I'm, going to, I'm about to read the text now. I'm about to read Matthew 4, 1 to 11. What I want you to do is I want you to read or look at it now in light of epic story, especially in light of Act 3, the Old Testament. I want you specifically to, as I'm reading Matthew 4, to be looking for any signals, any allusions to Israel's exodus and wilderness wandering in the desert for 40 years. That's what I want your radar to be looking for. Remember the story that Abraham has Isaac. Remember, Abraham's the, the, the nobody that God's going to use his family to save the entire world. <clears throat> Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob, just to review. Jacob has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. They become uh, 70 people. There's a famine. They go down to Egypt to, to, to survive the famine. And there they be fruitful and multiply and become a vast nation. Well, several generations passed. The, the Pharaoh uh, was used to be friendly to Israel, but the, 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 the new Pharaoh uh, doesn't like the Israelites, and he oppresses them, and God comes to their rescue and delivers them, and in what we call the Exodus, the Exodus deliverance out of Egypt. There's the plagues, there's signs and wonders, there's Moses, there's Aaron, and there's the crossing of the Red Sea, right? And then they get the Ten Commandments, they, get, they become God's covenant people, and then God sends them out into the wilderness on their way to the Promised Land. Now, were they supposed to be there for 40 years? They are there for 40 years, but were they supposed to on their way from Egypt? They're set free, right, from slavery. They're to journey through the wilderness and they're to go to the promised land. Were they supposed to be there for 40 years? They were supposed to be there about two weeks. But what happened? Why were they there for 40 years? They doubted. Let's... let's they doubted and they did what? Let's make it a little bit harsher. Let's use a harsh word. That's a kind word. They what? They tempted. The, they tested God and they they rebelled. Right? God is the Creator, King of the entire universe. Becomes the King of King and Covenant Lord at the at Mount Sinai. Becomes their King. Becomes their God. And they commit high treason. Right? Provocation? That who can use that word? He provokes them, he tests them, he, they rebel against him. They, re, they, provoke, they provoke him, right. They test him at Masa Meribah. That's exactly right. So let's read Matthew 4 in light of that, in light of the epic story, in light of the Exodus. I'll be reading from the ESV, and I'm going to actually start just a few, a couple of verses uh, before our actual text is Matthew 4, 1 to 11. I'm actually going to just pick up the last two verses of Matthew 3 uh, for us. 
Because what happens here is Jesus undergoes baptism, John's baptism. Something is said about Jesus, and then he's immediately launched into the wilderness. All right. Max, I'm going to be flying through a lot of texts now, so uh, Max is awesome. He's going to hang in there with me. Um, thank you, Max, for volunteering again this morning. Here we go. Now, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Very quickly, there has been 400 years of silence up to this point. In Matthew 1 and 2, we, get, we start getting a few dreams. Joseph sees dreams. God is at work again. But there hasn't been a prophet there. There's been this silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament for 400 plus years. And suddenly Joseph is starting to get dreams from God. And here we get the heavens opened and God speaks directly for the first time in the text. Revelation begins to flow again. And it speaks about Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now the word tempted here can also be translated tested. Paraito. It's the same word that's in Matthew uh, just a few verses later, where it says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Paraitso. Paraitso. <clears throat> so the word tempted can also be translated tested. And it is, in fact, here in our very same text. So I'm going to read it just a little bit different. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And after four, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, no kidding. I'd be hungry too after that. And the tempter, or the tester, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, you just were baptized and God said, You are my beloved Son. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every mouth, or I'm sorry, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and quote, On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Psalm, quoting from Psalm 91. The devil knows scripture as well. And you know what? He quotes it exactly as it is. He uses it for malevolent purpose. His application is horrible. But he quotes it exactly right. Wow. He's no slouch, our enemy. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the quest, to the test. <laughs> Quoting Deuteronomy 6, 16, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. So he quotes twice from Deuteronomy 6, quotes 
The other time from Deuteronomy 8, quoting the devil, quoting Deuteronomy back to the devil. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What is going on here? What did you see? Help me to make some of these links. In light of epic story, Israel's story in the wilderness and Jesus' story in the wilderness. What were some common threads that you saw? Okay, we have, the, we have the quotation of Deuteronomy 6, right? We have the manna text. Remember, manna is what Israel feeds on in the wilderness. God eventually provides that for them. That's exa- and it's the exact same word. Jesus was led. By who? By the devil? I think so. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Jesus was led by who into the wilderness? By the Spirit. Is God here at work or is the devil at work? Who's leading Jesus into the wilderness? God is. It is God, huh? It is God. That's right. And what's the purpose? What's the purpose of him being led into the wilderness? To be tested. To be tested. After the exodus out of Egypt, God led Israel into the wilderness of desert. Deuteronomy, Max, you have that? Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. What else did you see? To be tested. Do we have that up there still? Let's just do that one as well. Uh, you already mentioned that one, to be tested by the devil, by the Spirit. He's led into the wilderness to be tested for the purpose of being tested, tempted. And here we have testing. You should remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. This is uh, Moses speaking to Israel, right? This is Moses speaking to Israel. Testing you. Testing you. What's the purpose of the test? Why does God put Israel into this incredibly difficult furnace, this furnace of affliction, this difficult period, this stressful situation where they're not knowing whether what's going to come tomorrow? Are they going to have enough food? Are they going to have enough water? It's hot. Where's our shelter going to come from? How are we going to get across this desert to the promised land? Why does God put them in there? Why does he put them in this furnace of affliction? What's it say? To humble you. To know what was in your heart. To know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. It is easy to follow Jesus when things are good. And easy. The money's flowing, plenty of food in the fridge. Stocks are up. Your 401k is doing awesome. You just got the raise at work. Your football team just won the playoff championship. All's good. How about when things are not so easy? How about when things are incredibly difficult and life is laden with suffering and pain 
and uncertainty. What comes out of us then? What came out of Israel then? When Israel was pressed, what came out of Israel? Grumbling. Unbelief. Treason. Rebellion. God, where are you? We want to go back to Egypt. This stinks. Manna, we taste terrible. The water's horrible. It's hot. We had it way better back in Egypt. Testing. We see here in Matthew 4, 1, that Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tested. Will Jesus flinch? Or will Jesus be the faithful son? What happens after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting? I can't get from lunch to dinner without a mid-afternoon snack. And if I don't, you can ask my family, I'm hangry. All right? I'm just hangry. I'm grumpy. All right? 5.30, I'm looking at my watch like, I, I, <laughs> I need dinner now. So 40 days, 40 nights, Jesus is exhausted. Jesus is vulnerable. Jesus is ravidly hungry. Jesus is thirsty. He's vulnerable. And the temptation, of course, comes when he's tired. The temptation comes when we're vulnerable. The temptation comes when we're weakest. Always. So what's going to come out of Jesus when he's tested? Notice number three. Matthew's emphasizes, Matthew emphasizes Jesus' identity three times. He's, Jesus is only one thing in this text. One title. Matthew uses it three times. Who is Jesus in this text? He is the Son of God. God. That's right. Just like Israel was the Son of God in the Old Testament. What? Yeah. Jesus is the Son of God in the New Testament. Israel is the Son of God under the Old Covenant. The one who was to bring God's Revelation, God's salvation, God's chosen one to the ends of the earth. Exodus 4, Exodus 4, 22, 23. Then you shall, this is Moses, this is Yahweh, the Lord speaking to Moses. This is what Moses is to say to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not letting the people of Israel go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel is the son of God. Or Jeremiah 31 verse 20. Jeremiah 31 verse 20. Is not Ephraim my dear son? Ephraim, another word for Israel. Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight. Though I often speak against him, I will remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Hosea 11, verse 1. I don't know if I gave that one to you, Max, or not. Okay, we'll skip that one. Israel is the Son of God in the Old Covenant, wandering in the wilderness. 
being tested. Jesus is the Son of God, 40 days, 40 nights, wandering in the wilderness. That brings up point number four. Jesus is in the wilderness for how many days and how many nights? 40, I already said it. How many years is Israel wandering in the wilderness? It's 40 years, right? But why 40 years? It wasn't supposed to be. We already said this. It wasn't supposed to be 40 years. It's 40 years because of their rebellion, right? It was only supposed to be a couple weeks' journey from Mount Sinai, from the edge of Egypt to the Promised Land. Numbers 14. Numbers 14, 32 to 35. This is God speaking to Israel. This is just after the 12 spies went up to the promised land to check it out. And they came back in unbelief and said, they're too much for us. We can't take the promised land. And for their rebellion, God says this. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years suffering for your, their parents, unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community, Israel, which has banded together against me in rebellion. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they shall die. Why 40 years? Why 40 years? Each year representing a day, Lord, of going up to the promised land and in unbelief, not believing that God could bring Israel up, not believing his promise, not trusting his promise. So one year for each day. These are harsh words, right? Our God is the God of justice and righteousness and holiness as well as mercy and love and compassion and grace. These things go together in our one, our one Lord. So Jesus is in the wilderness. Israel is in the wilderness for 40 years, one for each day of rebellion. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. Number five, the devil tests Jesus three times. This is the fifth thing I want to point out, these, these parallels between Israel and, and Jesus. The fifth thing is the devil tests Jesus three times, and each time Jesus responds, quoting Deuteronomy. Quoting Deuteronomy. Quoting Deuteronomy back to the devil. Deuteronomy 6 to 8. Deuteronomy 6 to 8 Deuteronomy is the book that Moses writes at the edge of the wilderness. They're, they're almost done. They've been through the 40 years. And they're about to enter the promised land. And that first generation is dying and passing away. And that second generation is going to rise up, take the mantle, and go into the promised land where their parents and their unbelief and rebellion failed. Jesus is doing and obeying Deuteronomy where Israel failed to obey Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Be faithful to Him. Worship no other gods beside Him, right? 
Man shall not live on bread alone, but every, on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Israel is fulfilling those scriptures. I'm sorry, Jesus is fulfilling those scriptures. Jesus is obeying those scriptures where Israel miserably failed to obey those words in the wilderness. So what is going on here? What is going on in Matthew 4? Why is Matthew telling the story in this way? And what is he trying to convey about Jesus? Remember, the Gospel of Matthew is a presentation about the life and person and ministry of Jesus. What's he trying to tell us about Jesus? We have no bells and whistles here. We have no smoke machines. We have no balls. Uh, our music is Spotify. Uh, we have old wooden benches, pews, right? The best Moran Park to, can do. And the only thing we have to offer you is Jesus. And the only thing we have to offer you is an imperfect reading of the Gospel of Matthew. But I tell you that Jesus is all you need and that Jesus is all I need. Matthew's presenting Jesus. What is he presenting about Jesus now? Here, Matthew 4. The upshot, the upshot is not primarily that Jesus quotes scripture to combat temptation and so we should do the same. Yes, that is a, that's a legitimate application point. What is the text teaching us about Jesus? Jesus is fulfilled Israel. Remember how Act 3 in the Old Testament ends. It ends in a lurch. The Old Testament story has come to a screeching halt because Israel, tasked to bring God's glory to the nations, has failed. Israel herself is, turns out to be part of the problem. She herself partakes of Adamic Humanity, she's, she's fallen herself. She's sinful herself. And by the end of the Old Testament, God's epic story mission has come to a screeching halt because Israel has fallen apart. The wheels have fallen off. They can't get their act together. They're sinful like you and me. God's salvation has not gone to the nations. God's new creation project has not been fulfilled. Israel has failed to bring God's salvation to the nation. By the end of the epic story of old, the Old Testament, Malachi 3 and 4, Israel has come to a screeching halt. God's mission has come to a screeching halt. And then we have these 400 years of silence waiting where the world is groaning under the weight of injustice and sin and suffering and death. God, how long until you come and rescue us? Where are you? What about all those promises you made in the Old Testament to bring salvation through Israel and bring about resurrection and new creation? Save us from ourselves. Save us from our sin. And Matthew is saying that Jesus has come and he's recapitulating Israel's history. He's reliving Israel's history. He, where Israel failed succeeds where jesus where israel is the unfaithful son the disobedient son the rebellious son the king the the nation marked by treason jesus is the faithful son 
He does not flinch, even amidst unbelievable pressure to succumb. And he receives the divine approval. You are my son. In you I'm well pleased. What does that mean? It means that God's mission to save the world gets unstuck in Jesus. And the wheels that were jammed begin to turn again. And God's plan, His original intentions for creation to fill the earth with flourishing image bearers who reflect and radiate and enjoy and drink from the glory of God and fill the earth and the cosmos with His glory is on track again and will in fact succeed and will in fact happen in Revelation 21, 22. So some concluding applications. Just two. Moran Park, this is our Jesus. This is our Savior and our Lord. There is hope because he is the fulfilled Israel and the faithful son who when tested obeyed his father. It's not easy to obey when it's hard. When you're in the furnace of affliction. But Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured his suffering. He did not flinch. Despite being hungry, thirsty, exhausted, alone, Jesus, fully human by the power of the Spirit, overcame the temptations, the testing, and obeyed God. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And God's epic story mission to save the world is back on track. That's what Matthew is trying to say. Let it be noted, however, that the Gospel of Matthew does have one more ultimate test for Jesus. Will he flinch when he faces a Roman cross? when he's been scourged and his back has been ripped wide open, when he's been beaten, when he's been mocked, when he's all alone, when he's exhausted, bleeding, naked. They always crucified naked, by the way. And to be naked and to be exposed like that in Roman imperial society was the complete way to utterly mock and dishonor somebody. Naked, nails are six to eight inches when those go through your wrists and your feet. Would Jesus flinch? Would Jesus attempt to rescue himself from that pain? If he flinches, 
If he flinches at that moment, all is lost. But you know the rest of the story. You know that he didn't flinch. Yea, even to death on a cross, by his faithfulness, God's salvation from sin and death is unleashed from that cross and pours forth like a rushing, gushing river of life into a dying world. And all of us are invited to drink from that river of salvation and life unleashed at the cross. There's hope. There's hope. You don't have to have death be the end. Suffering's not the end. Your mistakes don't identify who you are. Come and drink from Jesus, from the faithful Son. For Jesus is Israel fulfilled. My second final application is the traditional one. Quoting Deuteronomy back to the devil. Jesus did find strength by memorizing scripture, having it on, in his heart and on the tip of his tongue so that he could do battle when temptation came. And as the perfect image bearer and those of us who are working in our uh, imperfect image-bearing process, it would do well for us to look at Jesus and the model he provides. So this isn't about launching any guilt on anybody. This is about an opportunity. How are you doing in memorizing Scripture? Maybe that's, maybe that's never a habit that you've done before. When you have scripture hidden in your heart, you can battle temptation as well like Jesus. It's true. You see, temptation comes with a false promise. The temptation promises pleasure. Temptation promises pleasure, always. Sugar-coated, right? The poison pill that's been sugar-coated promising pleasure. But it's camouflaged in half-truth so that you succumb to the temptation not seeing the truth about its deadly consequences that the chocolate-covered treat was actually laced with arsenic, and now you're dying. In the heat of the moment, you must have Scripture ready at hand in your heart, but then you also have to believe it to be true. It provides a way forward, but you must also trust it to be always right and always in your best interest. I put mine on three by five cards. This was mine from last week. This is Psalm 112, verse 7. You could do three by five cards, scripture memory. You could put it on your phone. Think if you did one once a week, you could have 52 verses memorized by after a year. So there's no guilt here, there's no guilt tripping. Jesus is not a religion, not a discipline a scope of religious disciplines that we do. But we would do well, Moran Park, as a community of people,
to know the word better and have it in our hearts. It's true. So let's encourage each other to be those who memorize Scripture. I'm going to call up the prayer team. We have one more song. As the prayer team comes forward, we also have uh, the discernment seats this morning. Um, Jack and Kathy will be up front with the discernment seats. Is that right? And uh, the readers will be up front for our prayer. If you need prayer or want prayer, you want to pray for somebody, you, you, know, that, you know of somebody that needs prayer, come and, come and talk to Tony and, and Bob. Maybe you're laden with, maybe, you're in, maybe you are in the furnace right now. Maybe you're in the fires of affliction, in a time of testing, time of trial, a really difficult situation. Come, you can come and get prayer as well. If you have something that you feel like you want to share, come and see Kathy and Jack. Maybe a response from this, something else that you want to share that you believe the Lord is speaking to you. If we do do that, just know that as a community, we test it. Max, do you have that test acronym? When somebody comes up and shares, and that, that includes my teaching this morning, we test it. Does it point us toward Christ? Does it edify? Is it scriptural? And we do it together as a community. We discern God's will. Uh, and if something is for us together as a community, and so we need to talk about it afterwards together. So with our final song, Max, we play that. Let's worship together. And Kathy will close us in a word as well.